As we look at this text this morning, there's a lot here, there's a lot of details, and there's, there's a lot of good stuff. And so this morning what I would love to do is for us to step back and, and look at this text in, in this way. I want us to see that, that these apostles are living on the verge of something, right? They're living on the edge of something big. And think about the Christian life for a second. The Christian life, that, that's how you and I live, right? We live on the verge of something. And, and here's what I mean, is that you, you and I, we live on the verge every day of the possibility of being changed, transformed, and growing to be more like Christ. We live on the verge of that every day. Every time we crack open the word of God and, and, and go to meet with the Lord, we live on the verge of, of him working out more and more just our salvation and making us more like him. We live on the verge every day. As we pray, we live on the verge of God answering prayers. We don't know how he's gonna answer them, right? We don't know all the time, but, but we live on the verge of that. Uh, you and I, we, we live on the verge of opportunities. Every day when we leave our, our place of, of uh, residence and we go to work, who knows the conversations that, that are out there to be had? But we live on the verge of maybe a conversation at work or at the coffee shop or wherever the Lord might take us. We live on the verge of opportunities. And not only that, but we live on the verge of a kingdom that's coming in all its fullness God is gonna consummate the kingdom of God one day with the return of Jesus Christ. And we live on the verge of that. We are waiting, hopeful, full of expectation of that. And we live on the verge in all our finiteness, waiting for future grace, for that day when we will get to be with Christ face to face. We live on the verge of that. And so we are the people we're, we live on the verge of things, just like these apostles, and we don't know what's always around the corner, right? I mean, sometimes it could be trials, right, that God wants to use. We don't like them, but God uses them to grow us, and some of us are witnesses of that in here today. Some of us even going through those seasons of trials now where God is growing us during this time. They're hard, right? They're not easy, and so we live on the verge as Christians. Now, that's not a fearful thing. It's not a panicking thing, but it's a thing that, that is real, and it's the thing that these apostles, they live on the verge of something right before them that is going to dramatically turn their world upside down and, and, and shake them up and change the world forever. And, and so as we look at that text, I, I want us to think of it like that and, and think of this idea of we're people that live on the verge of something. And so look at verse 12 this morning. I want us to kind of walk through this. You might be saying, what in the world does Judas and his attestants falling out have to do with that today? We'll see, we'll see. Good night. That, got a little, that was gruesome, George. I thought you were gonna skip over, just kidding. Um, but um, look at verse 12, all right? He says, and you're just gonna have to fight through sniffles this morning, all right? <laughs> so sorry. Uh, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem, the apostles did, from the mount called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem. Someone bring me a tissue. Yeah, I'm not crying, all right? Not crying. Maybe we'll yet when we get to Judas, but anyway. Okay, so Mount of Olives, 
near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And so here's the apostles. They've been told to go to wait in Jerusalem. They do. So Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Selet, Judas the son of James, uh, or excuse me, James. So the apostles, they returned to Jerusalem. Remember in Acts chapter 1, 4, 5, and also verse 8, what have they been told? Jesus has told them, go back to Jerusalem, wait there for what the Father has promised, right? Verse 4 and 5, you see that in chapter 1? And then he tells them, when you get there, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit in just a few days from now, and you will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so you hear that, and what do you hear that they're waiting for? What are they on the verge of? They're, in ver- they're on the verge of something that is God-sized, not something that, that man can think up and do, Right? But they're waiting in Jerusalem for something that is way beyond them. And too often we settle for just man-sized stuff, what we can do, right? But God wants to do big things and huge things and God-sized things. And that's what you and I, I pray as a church, we're waiting for, we're hoping for, and that we're on the verge for. And what does that mean? That, that, that means in light of this text that, man, we're praying, we're hoping that there are people that are coming to Christ or going to come to Christ, and we're praying, we're waiting for that, we're hoping for that, and we want to see that. We want to see God pour out his spirit and change the lives of people. And that's what he's going to do here, and that's what they're waiting for. That's what they're longing for. And so they go back to Jerusalem with something that is bigger than them. They're on the verge of God empowering them to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the most parts of the earth. And so you think about this, we know these guys do that, right? And it is God-sized, and it's big, and God uses all their imperfections and does something huge. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for that. And so how do they respond to God telling them to go and wait in Jerusalem? Simply, they obey they obey. And obedience is huge. It's simple here in this text. They go and do it. How many of us would like during the day Jesus just to say, hey, listen, specifically today, will you go wait in Jerusalem in the upper room, all right? Some of us would like that kind of black and white communication from Jesus. It doesn't always look like that. But Jesus wants from you and I obedience. And so living on the verge is about living in obedience because we don't know what's around the corner, but one thing he does ask for us, no matter what happens, is obedience. And so Eugene Peterson says this, that God desires from you and I that we would have a long obedience, a long obedience in the same direction. What does that speak of? That speaks of persistence, consistency, and commitment to the things of God, and that we would obey consistently. That's what he wants from us. That's what he wants from you and I. That's what he gets from his apostles here. So they go to the upper room, and look what happens in verse 14. What does this obedience look like? He says, these with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so the apostles, they go to the upper room. They're waiting in Jerusalem and who does it include? The women. Probably their wives, right? Not all the apostles probably have wives, but according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, it seems that some may. Um, 
Mary Magdalene maybe, Mary and Martha, remember the, the sisters of Lazarus, they could be hanging out, but definitely Mary, the mother of Jesus, is involved here. She's with them. And then it says his brothers, Jesus' brothers. Now that's huge that that's mentioned here. You know, Scripture, every part of Scripture has purpose and meaning and is huge. And you can't miss the fact that Jesus' half-brothers are mentioned here, that they're with the apostles now. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And so why is that huge? Because back in John 7, 5, it says that they were not believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And so what does it mean their presence now means that they are believing? In fact, you think of James. James will soon be the church leader in Jerusalem, one of Jesus' brothers. Not only that, we have a book in the Bible after him. One of his brothers by the name of Judas also go by the name of Jude. Wouldn't that be cool to have like two names, Right? A lot of these guys do. You're like, hey, that's pretty cool. Is that his stage name or something? I mean, you know what I mean? So you got Judas, one of Jesus' brothers. His name is Jude. We have a little book in the New Testament called Jude, written by one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And so God lets us know who's there, and it's got purpose, and it's got meaning. And so they're gathering there. What are they doing? I want you to hear this. Living on the verge is about waiting, waiting. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're there in Jerusalem. They're waiting. They're not twiddling their thumbs, and they're not on their iPad playing Candy Crush or Home Run Derby or Angry Birds like that. I mean, they're not there yet, right? And so they're not doing that, but they're waiting and expecting and hoping. And let's be honest. None of us in here like to wait. I mean, we hate waiting for fast food, right? We hate, I mean, the worst is going to the doctor, Right? And we might, have, we might have a complaint there, a valid one. But we hate waiting. But, but let, me, let me talk about this. Waiting, I, waiting is what the Christian life is about. It's waiting on God. And, and you and I don't, and we don't like that. We like to move, man. We like to move. We like to, let's do something. But the Christian life is about waiting. Listen to what God says in Psalm 62.5. In fact, David says this. He says, my soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. You hear that there? David's telling his soul to wait. Why? He didn't like to wait. Listen to Psalm 135. I wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. My soul does wait, and in his word do I Hope. As we wait, we're trusting, we're hoping in the promises of God found in his word. And so how do these apostles wait? They wait in hope. They wait in expectation. They don't just wait sitting on the bench. Their waiting has purpose to it. And so how do they wait on God? Listen to what it says. With one mind continually devoted to prayer. So one mind. What does that mean? This group that's gathered, the 11 apostles and the others, they are together. And not just together in the sense of location, but they're together in the sense of like-mindedness. They're united in mission. And that's how God's going to build his church, right? With this like-mindedness around the mission of God as they carry the name of Jesus to the nations. And so let's think about our community here. We are to be one mind around the mission of God, that that's what our lives would be about, a spreading a passion for the name and the supremacy of Christ in our city and across the world, that, that we would be united 
around that, that we would all be witnesses of that. And that's what they were. They were of one mind. They were united together. And then it says this, they continually devoted themselves to prayer. Think about something in your life that you continually devoted yourself to. I pray there's something, right? <laughs> what is that? What, what in your life have you continually devoted yourself to? I look out here and I look, look at husbands and wives who have continually devoted themselves to each other for years and years and years. And I look at parents out here who have continually devoted themselves to their kiddos and to love them and cherish them and nurture them for years and years and years. And you could fill in the blanks. I look back at my life and, and where did I learn devotion? It's, it's very interesting. I look back often and I think about two things in my life where God told me taught me what devotion looked like. I'll be honest with you, I look at my life and up to my, my senior year in high school, I, you were just tell me, what does devotion look like? What is commitment like? And, and not many high school students know that, right? But when I was a senior in high school, God taught me something through a professor. And I was enrolled in a class called Calculus. If you knew me back then, that was very laughable, right? It was a very laughable thing. And I went into class one day and I looked around and I thought to myself, I've never seen any of these people before and there was a reason for that because they were all in advanced placement classes and I never stepped foot in one before. And I saw, I see all these guys and I'm listening to what's being taught and I'm like, oh my goodness, what in the world am I doing in here? How did I <laughs> arrive in this class? And, and I'll never forget, the teacher kept calling on me and I thought, why in the world is he doing this? And then I started seeing, oh well, he wants to show me, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and... I remember one day after class, he comes up to me, he says, with him. I was like, yes. He said, um, I know you play soccer. I know you want to keep playing soccer. And to do that, you've got to pass my class. And I'm like, yes. And he says, to do that, you're going to have to devote yourself to this class. And I said, well, what, what, what? so, okay, well, help me. Because I, I was realizing that this just ain't going to fly. This is, uh, there's no way I'm going to make it. And he said, listen, he said, every day after practice, I'll be here at five o'clock. I was like, what? He said, every day after practice, I'll be here at five o'clock, my door's open, I want you to come in and just get at it, get at it. I'm like, math? I gotta get at math? <laughs> I mean, I, I was cool with getting at soccer and all that kind of stuff, like, at math? And I'll never forget, man, Mr. Dewar taught me, not only how to do calculus, but he taught me devotion, hard work. He taught me commitment at things that were way beyond what this mind could do. He taught me commitment. And so think about commitment. Think about being devoted to something, continually devoted to something. And that's what these apostles were. They were continually devoting themselves to what? To prayer. Persistence. Um, daily. It was habitual. It's continual. That's what they're doing. They're, they're praying as they're gathered there in the upper room. They're devoted to praying. And so what does that mean? Prayer to the apostles was a priority. And it should be a priority to us as well. And so think about prayer this morning. What is prayer? I mean, real simply, prayer is, is you and I conversing with God. I mean, that's, it's, it's like if, if Andrew Magnus and I were going to sit over coffee, right? It's, it's that. That's what it is. God, God wants to commune with us. He wants to talk with us. Um, it is, though, a very unnatural activity. It's not something that we're just born with, that we're just like, oh, yeah, man, I can pray. I got this, that. No, man, it is something that is totally outside of us. It flies in the face of self-reliance. It flies in the face of self-sufficiency. It's communication with God, but it's the most 
intimate communion we can have with him is when we pray, when we pray. And so think about prayer just for a second, if you, if you could. If you'll turn with me just, just for maybe a couple minutes, look at Luke 11 real quick. And I just want to read this text to you. I'm going to say something about it, and then I'm going to go back to Acts 1. So, and then we're going to get our closing point. But I want you to hear this. In Luke 11, 9 through 13, listen to this. Luke 11, it's also up on the screen. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, so I say to you this. Now, if you go up a few verses... What is Jesus talking about in this context? Context is everything, right? He's talking about prayer, okay? He's just told us, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. But look at verse nine. He says, so I say to you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. And so what is prayer? Prayer is us, yes, asking, right? But, but what are we asking God? What are we asking God? So let me give you some few verses here because he's saying here, keep on asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. And so be devoted to prayer. Pray without ceasing, Paul says. And so he's encouraging us with repetition to keep praying, keep coming to him, keep meeting with him. But listen to what we ask for. Listen to Isaiah 45, 11. It's up on the screen. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons and you shall commit to me the works of my hands. And so ask me about my will. Ask me about uh, things that apply to the word of God. Pray the word of God. I mean, the Lord is asking us, come and, and, and commune with me, meet with me about the things in your life and then he says in verse Psalm 2.8, listen to what he says as well. He says, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance in the very ends of the earth as your possession. So what does that mean? God wants us to come and ask and say, God, would, would you please allow me to be a witness to spread your word to every nook and cranny in this world, even to the nations? And he says right here, I'll, I'll give you the nations. I'll, I'll give you them as an inheritance. And so what does that mean? That they will come and, and, and be a part of the kingdom with you. And so he says, ask me for those things. Pray concerning your witness. And then listen to this, Jeremiah 33.3. He says this, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Wow, did you hear that? So God says this, come and meet with me and I'm gonna show you things you do not know. Now, let me tell you something. This morning as I was reading this, I started thinking. I was like, you know what? God is, God is amazing sometimes and so simple. But think about it. Sometimes when you go to pray, sometimes just saying the words and praying, God answers. Right? Have you ever prayed and you've said something and you've gone, oh, wait. I know the answer to that. <laughs> you ever done that? Or you've said something, you've prayed something, and you've, you've realized, oh wait, the, the issue is that I'm praying with, the issue is me and my motive and my heart. And so sometimes God answers quick, man. Sometimes he shows us things very quick. But sometimes the asking, the seeking, the knocking is to be persistent and continuous, and it's long. Like praying for someone to come to Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's praying and praying and praying for years and years and years and years and years and decades and decades. And it may be 
forever that we keep praying, but he wants us to keep praying. And he tells us here, he's going to tell us things, he's going to show us things that are way beyond things we've ever known. And that's what he wants to do. So prayer is, is amazing. It's the place where God shows us our heart. It's the place where God grows us and prepares us for things that he has in store for us, even for that day. It's a great place to go and let God just work on our heart, get us ready for the day, prepare our hearts. Prayer, I want you to hear this. Prayer has two purposes to it that I want you to get real quick. The first one is this. When we pray, ultimately the purpose is we're praying that God would be honored and glorified, right, through our life. But second, when we go to pray, prayer's for us. And I want to be careful with that. Prayer's not selfish. That's not what I mean by that. But ultimately, prayer, what does prayer do? Prayer changes us. It's where God transforms us. It's where you want to be changed? Start praying, man. Start praying. That's where God changes us and starts aligning us with his purposes for his glory. That's what he wants to do. And so he tells them there, ask, seek, and knock. But he has promises connected to that. He says, when you ask, I'll answer. When you knock, the door will be open. When you seek, you're going to find. There's promises. And not only that, who does he say to pray to? He says, Pray to the Heavenly Father. Now, does that mean that when we pray that we don't pray to Jesus? I mean, there's nights. I mean, my kids, they look at me sometimes and they're like, so who are we praying to? Which part of the Trinity are we praying to tonight? Because I'll be praying like, dear Jesus or Holy Spirit and stuff like that. So, so it doesn't matter. I mean, there's not, let's be careful there that we don't get weirded out by who we're praying to. We're praying to God, right? But he says right here, pray to the Heavenly Father. In Romans 8, he says you've been adopted. You've been given a spirit of adoption. So pray, uh, cry out. Abba, Father, so we pray to the Father, and here's what he tells us, is he desires in verse uh, 11 through 13, for time's sake, we're not going to read every verse there, but in verse 11 through 13, Luke 11, what does he say? He desires to give us what? Good gifts. And some of you just got happy. You're like, yeah. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, but what kind of good gifts are we talking about? God wants to give us good gifts so that we can be a blessing to others. God desires to give us good gifts so that we can be that empowered witness. And so ultimately, what is that good gift at the end of verse 13? It's the Holy Spirit. And so the light might have just came on for some of us this morning. Might be saying, okay, I get the connection to X1. I get the connection. So here's what these guys are doing. God has told them to go do the very thing he's been teaching them. Go and wait, go and pray, and I'm gonna give you a good gift. The Holy Spirit is coming. And here's what I want you to see, because this is, I think this is amazing, but, but we've got like four minutes to do this, so here's what I'm gonna do. Go back to Acts 1, and I wanna show you something. Look at verse 15 through, through 26, and then I'm gonna encourage you today to maybe go reflect on this and go reread through this, because it's gonna be fast, and so here's the deal. Look what he does. But I just want you to see this because God blows me away often in his word by just the, the details. But in verse 15, he, he starts sharing the events of Judas and then Matthias. And I don't know, sometimes I read this and I think, why is this here? Why, I don't, the, Lord, connect the dots because not, they're not connecting. And so, so can I connect them just a little bit, I think, this morning? So we think about this, when we go to pray to the Father, what kind of face are we looking into? 
When we look into the face of God, what kind of face are we looking into? And so let me give you this picture this morning. If I'm walking down the street with Eliana, who's three, I'm gonna take my younger two, Eliana, who's three, and Pierce, who's seven, and I'm walking down the street with them, and I've got hand in hand, right? And I've got a hand of compassion. I've got a hand of tenderness and gentleness and love. And I look at them, and when they look at me, they see a father who is pleased and who loves them and who cares for them. I mean, that's what they see. But if you've got somebody walking up that's a threat, a stranger, maybe who's gonna come and and maybe say something to them, and maybe they do say something to them, or maybe it looks like they're gonna be hurt by this person. What do they wanna see out of their dad? Do they wanna see a dad who starts panicking and going, oh no, and start running? (laughs) No, I mean, they wanna see a dad who becomes defender and warrior, right? And they wanna see a dad who steps in and is full of confidence and saying, don't talk to my kids like that. And be that warrior, right? And so let me just tell you this, that's who God is. God is full of compassion, his father. He's compassionate and he's loving and he's caring. But he is also defender and a mighty warrior. When you think of Jesus, Jesus is tough. He's not only just tender, but he's tough. When you think of the Holy Spirit, yes, he's the comforter and he's the helper in John 14, 15, 16. But not only that, what we see in this text this morning is he is all-powerful, he is conquering, and you can't stop him. The Holy Spirit is an unstoppable force. And so how do we see it? This is where we're going to fly. Look at verse 16. All right, look what happens here. Because you want to see this. This is cool. This is worth staying around. All right. Verse 16 says, brethren, the scripture, I love this. This is Peter. He's talking now. This is the 10-day period. They're praying. They're waiting. They're hanging out. They got 120 people hanging out with them now. And now Peter is preaching and and talking and all this kind of stuff. And now he's talking to him. Look what he says. He says here, uh, verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. I love that. The scripture had to be fulfilled. This isn't like it maybe had to be fulfilled or, man, it's up for grabs whether it had to be. No, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to, the, uh, to those who arrested Jesus. Now, here's the deal, is that we're going to see here the face of the Holy Spirit that cannot be conquered. And for you and I, this is huge as we leave here today. Because look what happens, go down to verse 20. This is a hinge verse, because the beginning of verse 20, look what it says. It says this, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. So Psalm 69, 25, thousands of years ago it is written, and here it's quoted. And what's it, what, what's it saying? That, that his house would be desolate. Whose house? Judas's. That the land that he would buy with the blood money that he received when he betrayed Jesus Christ, he bought the land, and then what happens on that land? He takes his own life. And his habitation is desolate. Scripture prophesied this thousands of years ago. The Holy Spirit inspired that to be written thousands of years ago. That's huge. Look at the other side of the hinge. Look at the end of verse 20. Let another man take his 
office. That's Psalm 109, verse 8. Thousands of years ago, it's written. And then what happens in verse 21 through 26? I'll summarize. George read it for us, but listen to this. Matthias is chosen to be that next apostle. And I'm going to show you something about him just in a, in a mere second, but listen to this. Matthias is chosen. So another fulfillment. And you might be saying, okay, what's the point? What's the point? Because we got we to get this. Here's the point. Why would God take something so horrific as Judas and pin it down here for you and I? It's to show us that the Holy Spirit is all-powerful, that his purposes will not fail. And so here's the deal. So what does that mean for you and I? It could mean this, that even on a bad day or even on a day where we get betrayed by someone, when somebody crosses us, on a bad day where somebody close dies and we don't know why, we're confused and we don't understand. I want you to look at this text this morning and realize this, that, that God is even working in those times. And we may not get it. We may not get it. We may be confused. We may not understand. But here's what I want you to hear and see in this text this morning because this is huge. When things like that happen, when we go through times like that, I can guarantee you this, when you go to meet with the Lord and you cry out to him and you pray, you are not gonna see a face that's panicked. You are not gonna see a father or a son in Jesus. You're not gonna see the Holy Spirit who is worried and freaking out. But you're gonna see a comforter, a healer, a defender, a warrior who stands for you, who walks with you, holds a compassionate hand, but also defends you mightily and his purposes, even though things might be bad, his purposes will not be thwarted. And that's what we see here. We see it here and you might be saying, well, how does this connect to what's going on in this text and how does it come back to me a little bit here? Well, here's the deal. Remember, he just called them out to be these empowering witnesses. How he's gonna do that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, what does the replacement of Matthias mean? How does that fit to all this? Well, here's what it means, is that the Holy Spirit, this all-powerful force, does something in you and I that impacts the lives of others. And here's what he does. Look at the verse 21 and 22, and I think this is all we're going to see, but look before we go. Listen to what he says. He said, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all, the time that the Lord Jesus went in and he went out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So what's that saying is this, is that the guy that they pick next through the the leading of the Holy Spirit, they're going to cast lots to do that. Is it going to be Barsabbas or is it going to be Matthias? The important thing about one of these guys is that they have to be a witness of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's key. That's who they had to be. So what's this text saying? These guys, these apostles, as they're praying, they're not looking for some woo thing of the Holy Spirit. You know, some people get, get kind of weird with the Holy Spirit, right? 
And, and as soon as they hear about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and stuff like that, they start going freaky. And, and they start, even in their language and the way they talk and all the things like that. But here's what we see about this empowering by the Holy Spirit that's big to us. Is that the Holy Spirit's role is always to point back to Jesus. Always. And the replacement of Judas had to be one who saw it, who was an eyewitness to these things. And that plays a big part to you and I because it means our witness, it's empowered by an all-powerful Holy Spirit. And then what is it doing? It's causing us to witness to the life and the work and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. That's the point that God is making here. And he's using the events, he's using the details that were prophesied in his word to show us himself. That's what he's doing. And so here's the point as we leave today. Here's what I want you to walk away with. It's real simple as this. We live on the verge of many things. We don't know what the rest of this day looks like. We don't know what tomorrow looks like. Some of you guys I hear are stepping into new jobs tomorrow. Some of you guys are gonna be going on your campuses tomorrow. Some of you guys go back to the old job. You've been there for 20 years. And, and, but we all live on the verge of opportunities, we live on the verge of things. And so how do we live on the verge? Here's the deal, we wait for God by praying, by being connected to a community where we have a like-mindedness about the mission of God and we believe together that we have a God who is compassionate, who is a helper, who is a comforter, but not only that, he's a defender and he's an all-powerful force that wants to use you and I to speak the name of Jesus into the lives of others and tell them about the hope that we have. And that's what he's about to do with this group of people and he's gonna turn the world upside down. What if a group of people followed these people and said, listen, I wanna be continu continually devoted and pray and meet with God and let God start changing me and st God start walking, working in my life so that I too can be a witness like these guys. That's what God wants to do. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's doing. And so this morning, I, I pray that we just say, okay, God, I'm willing to simply obey like they did and wait on you and pray. Let's pray together.